The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we have already this morning had opportunity to pray and to sing and, and to, in, in different ways, touch upon what this passage again mentions, that you have on your people poured out a great blessing. You have sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. You have given him to us as, a, as in another way, another promise a down payment, a guarantee that there is more to come, a surety. So we have him, which is marvelous, and we have him because there is more marvelous coming. So I want to say thank you, and I want to ask you then to buy the power of the Spirit in each of us and in the midst of this, this body would you powerfully minister to us today? Would you make your word clear? Would you grow us? Would you cause us to grow in, in some particular ways? Some of them I don't know because I don't know all the people here. I don't know where we each are coming from this morning. But there are particular ways that we need you to touch us and grow us. And so would you please minister by your spirit in the lives of individuals here. Grow us in those particular ways and in some other ways, Lord. I pray that you would grow in us as, as a body, that you would grow in us thankfulness and awareness, that you would grow in us repentance, an awareness of sin and an awareness of the gospel. Both. And a repentance from sin and a repentance to you, Jesus. And then a great thankfulness a great thankfulness for what you have done in the gospel to make us new. Grow that in us this morning, Father, by your Spirit. Build your people, build your church. Cause us to shine like a light in the world that you would be known. Take this passage that's before us. This passage from the Gospel of Luke about a a prophet who lived a long time ago and died. Lord, make it live and make it real for us today. Give clarity to my words. Give focus to my words. Help us to think clearly and to listen. And by your Spirit, build your people. Build your church. That's our hope this morning, Lord. Make the Word clear. Own us. Move us. Soften us if we need it. Strengthen us if we need it. Whatever is needed, Lord, would you grow and would you build? Would you gain honor for yourself? Cause yourself to shine here, please. So lift up the word here this morning and build your church for the glory of Christ and for the good of his people, we pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 7, and as we have seen, this chapter begins with a couple of remarkable healings. First, Jesus begins by healing the deathly ill servant of the Roman military officer, the centurion, and then he followed that up with an even more remarkable healing. He actually raised a guy from the dead, the only son of the widow of Nain. These are stunning things. They are amazing things. And the crowds that followed him saw them and were filled with wonder at them. 
and praise about him and about what he had done, praise to God for him, and they are constantly chattering about him. They are gossiping about Jesus everywhere. And word is spreading all throughout the land of Israel about Jesus and about his miraculous works. And report of him reached everywhere, including to John, John the Baptist, who's locked up in prison. He hears about all this, and John has a question. And as we saw last week, he sends two messengers to Jesus to ask him the question personally and directly, are you, Jesus, the one who is coming? That is, are you the one who is the Messiah, the one who is coming to earth, promised long ago? Are you the divine king who's going to set up, finally, the perfect, righteous kingdom of God? Are you that one? And John's wondering, because while he's heard report of all this good, he has another expectation, one that we often have as well. When the king, when the divine king, when God the king comes to set up the kingdom of righteousness, that should include the wiping away of all wickedness, shouldn't it? That's often our expectation, certainly John's. As we saw, he expected, and we we looked at this, you can look at this in the two halves of Isaiah 61, verse 2. Jesus had used that passage before. John had preached and, and certainly expected the first half of the verse, the king comes with favor, the day of favor, and the second half of the verse, vengeance. Same verse, favor and vengeance, both together. And John's heard of favor, heard of meek, merciful, gracious, extending of hope, but he hasn't heard anything about vengeance, and he's wondering. That should be here too, so are you in fact the one? Behind his prison bars, he's wondering. He should be, he should be free. Herod should be dealt with if Jesus is the one. In Jesus' answer, says the messengers, look around and see all the signs of the first half of that verse, all the signs of the kingdom, the reversal of the fall. Look, it's happening. The dead are raised, the deaf hear, the lame walk, etc., etc., etc. Look, favor, kingdom come. It's, it's happening right before your eyes. The second half has not happened yet, true. But the first half has. And the last sentence of that passage, so don't be put off by this. Don't be offended. Blessed is the one who's not offended that I, the Messiah, have chose to come in meek mercy first. I, I will come. I still am the coming one. And I will come to set all things right eventually. But I have come first in meek mercy, holding out an offer of help. Don't be offended. But in fact, great blessing there is for the one who embraces me like that now. You'll find a whole lot more of me walking with you through the evil, not just eliminating it. You will find much of me, much blessing from me in the midst of evil, in my meekness and in my mercy. But don't be turned off by that, but instead embrace me as I am. That's Jesus' message to John through the messengers, and they head back to John with that message. And then Jesus turns to everybody who's standing around to talk to them about John, to mention something about John, and in so doing something about the kingdom. And that's where we're going to look this morning, the next passage, verses 24 to 30. Let me read the passage, and then I'll pass back through it. There are a couple of details we need to spend perhaps a little more time clarifying, just a little bit more in this passage. So I'll pass back through it to clarify a couple of details before making two observations. Let me read Luke, this is chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. When John's messengers had gone... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, 
I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Luke chapter 7. Jesus turns to the crowd to talk about John, and he does so. He, he picks up the topic by asking them three times about their intentions. And when he says their or, or, or you, he means that more generically, you people of Israel, not exactly those folks in the crowd. There's not a direct overlap with the people who are in front of Jesus and the people who all went out to hear John. He means you people of Israel, you all. Why did you go out in the wilderness back then? And it wasn't to check out the scenery, a reed shaken by the wind. And it wasn't like so many paparazzi chasing the beautiful people of the land, chasing a celebrity. People who wear fine clothes and live in luxury are in the palaces. That's not why you went. It wasn't because of where and it wasn't because of who. It was because of what. He was a prophet. A prophet of God that drew people. And I tell you, says Jesus, he's more than an ordinary prophet. And then in verse 27, we get... We get a quote, which your footnote may show you, is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus refers back to the book of Malachi and identifies John as the one of whom it is written. Malachi 3, 1. Malachi is the last prophet ministering in the time of the Old Testament. So in our English Bibles, it's fitting that Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. Hebrew Bibles is not, not in different order, but he's the last in the line of the prophets. He's, he's the end of our English Bibles. It's a good reason because he creates, he kind of furthers and then puts a finishing touch on this great cliffhanger of the Old Testament. In a couple different places in the book of Malachi, he talks about the coming day of the Lord, which as we've already considered in the Old Testament is often considered, often expressed as one day, a day of favor and a day of vengeance, right together. A coming day of the Lord when God comes in favor and in judgment. And before that day, there would be a messenger to come. And then for 400 years, there's silence. That, that's the effect of the book of Malachi. The day of the Lord, favor and vengeance. And before that, a messenger. Whew, 400 years of nothing. So everybody knows this. Everybody is waiting for the next season to begin. You know, you wait all summer long for the, the cliffhanger to be resolved. They're waiting for 400 years for the cliffhanger to be resolved. And Jesus says, that's who Malachi was talking about. The messenger who comes before the one who is to come. And he comes to prepare. That's why John is so great. In fact, verse 28, no one born of women, no human, is greater than John. All natural born human beings, line them all up, John's the greatest. Which, of course, not everybody agreed with. A bunch of people disparaged him, in fact. He was rejected by lots of folks, which is what 29 and 30 are getting at. And these verses, depending on which English translation you're looking at, these verses are a bit awkward in all of them because they are, a, they are a dropped in by Luke, a parenthetical addition. Luke's making a comment here, and there's, there's discussion, difference of opinion. Who's, who's he talking about here? Verse 29, when all the people heard, literally that's all it says. That's why I didn't read the word this. When all the people heard, heard who? Some think heard Jesus, because Jesus is the one just talking there. I think there are a couple of clues that say it should be greater than he, that is John, when all the people heard John. 
A couple clues in the text point us that direction. First of all, that's where the passage began, talking about the people going out to hear a prophet. Second, the people who respond to him are the crowds of John, all the people, and in particular, the tax collectors. They respond favorably. They declared God just. And the best way to translate this, being baptized with the baptism of John. That's how they declared God just. They were baptized with the baptism of John. Again, that's another reference back to before. They weren't baptized currently listening to Jesus. He's pointing us, Luke, and dropping in this little addition, is pointing us back to the response to John, to John's ministry. People accepted it, declared God just. That is, affirmed, agreed with, said God is right, or Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them, not being baptized, turning away from him. Two different responses. Responses to this ministry given by God through John, this preparing. So that's what we need to look at now. We need to make a couple of observations about John and his work, how we respond to that, and then what it's for. Why? I'm going to make two observations. And as I... I think perhaps particularly with the first one. John is about repentance. So when we think about this, we're going to have to work on it and understand a few technicalities here in this, in this first observation that I'm about to make. But I know that some of you are, are kind of in the, in the back of your minds thinking, somehow this is going to come around to somebody whacking me with a big stick. Because I know, essentially, I know John is about repentance. Well, let down your guard. John is indeed about repentance. And the second point is going to more emphasize, and that's a really, really, really good thing. But, but the first point, that I, I'm, I'm not going to whack you with a stick, by no means. But I am going to plead with you to listen to and embrace the ministry because God gave this. This ministry that is this ministry of John the Baptist amongst people, God gave it. The God who is good. So you should, rather than, rather than like leaning on the back foot, tentative, hesitant, shield up, you should be leaning on the front foot thinking, the God who gave the Jesus of meek mercy and hope gave John right in front of him. There must be, he must be up to something good here. Don't cringe. Be open and, and receptive. Be vulnerable to God's word here. So here's the first point. John is the great prophet of preparation the great prophet of preparation he's more than an ordinary prophet as we've already noted Jesus ties into the Malachi 3.1 expectation that's why John's so great and think about that the greatest human you can walk through the Old Testament and Moses and Samuel and David and Isaiah John because John stands at this unique point, this unique spot, in this position of introducing, of leading right into this great work of God in redeeming his people. He has a special spot, a unique place. He's the one sent to prepare. And we need to understand this because his work of preparation is going to extend even into our very lives today. So we've got to understand what it is this preparation is about. And we look at it a second time. If you look at verse 27 a second time, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit odd. Because if you were to put the verse right next to the Malachi verse, you'd notice they're not quite the same. Probably can't open up. Maybe some of you with your apps can. Don't waste your time. If you put them right next to each other, you'll notice Malachi has two parties. 
the Lord and the messenger, I will send my messenger before my face. Two parties, the my, the Lord, messenger. When Jesus quotes this, he modifies it a little bit, as the Bible often does, incidentally, and as we do often. When we quote something often, we modify something to make the application of it a little more explicit. Jesus is modifying the quote so as to make it really clear what it's about. Three parties. Behold, I, one, send my messenger, two, before your face, three. Three parties there. He will prepare your way before you. Three parties, not two. Is Jesus confused? No. What's he getting at? Well, we can think about this and understand it if we maybe hop back a couple pages in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40. Also spoken about John. We saw that back chapter... Four, three, chapter three. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. What does that voice cry out? John's voice. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the Lord's way. And then here's what that looks like. He prepares the way. He makes the path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level. Several chapters ago when we addressed that, we pointed out how he's kept capturing a metaphor, Isaiah's capturing a metaphor of how a, a way before a coming dignitary would be fixed up, spruced up. A king or a governor or a ruler is going to come to town and you tidy things up, you smooth out the rough places, you clear away the garbage, the potholes get filled in, the high places get torn down so that the, the king, the governor, whatever, can then come, can approach on a prepared, clean, smooth, good path. That's, that's the metaphor Isaiah is picking up. That's what John's going to do. I send my messenger. He comes, prepare the way of the Lord, make the path straight. That is, fix the ground The ground needs to be prepared. The roughness smoothed. And then that becomes the way the Lord walks on. Jesus modifies slightly Malachi's statement so as to clarify this for us. He doesn't need any help coming. He doesn't need to be introduced. He doesn't need to be prepared. The world does. People need to be prepared. I send my messenger before your face to stand and minister in front of you people. The messenger John who will prepare the way of the people, the ways, the lives of the people that then become my way, that I then come walk on. Like a path is prepared that is then the path of the, the dignitary, the king. This perfectly matches what was said of John by the angel in Luke chapter 1 when his birth was announced. John will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So said the angel, chapter 1. His particular ministry is to come prepare the lives, the way of a people, to make their way before them, the way that we walk, the way that we are, what we are, who we are, one that is receptive to the Lord when he comes. Or to put it another way, and here now we are to the point. One that's just as applicable to us now and in every day and in every age. Jesus comes. And I say that Jesus comes in time and in place, and maybe Jesus comes to you right now, maybe even over this pulpit. Maybe next Tuesday as you're reading your Bible, you're, you're sitting in your car. 
Jesus comes meek and merciful. Jesus comes bringing the favor of the Lord. Jesus comes with hands held out, pierced hands held out with an offer of hope and help and forgiveness. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, but the world is not prepared for such a message. As it is, as we are. We will completely misunderstand such a message and we will scoff at it and the world will reject it and take it for granted. The world as it is, is totally unprepared to receive what it perceives as a deserved offer. Of course, mercy to me, I am fine, says the world. Not use it with that much attitude. That's, that's the world's posture. From birth raised up, we come by it honest. Our fathers and mothers thought like that. We all think like that. And we are totally unprepared to receive correctly, properly, an offer of mercy and forgiveness and love and grace because we think ourselves deserving of such. Take it for granted and in fact, set it aside. Set him aside. And so John is sent to us first to prepare us by proclaiming to us, to all of the world, the terrible reality of sin and the need then for us, the need then for us to find a release from it, to find a way out of it, to find a correction for it, to find a redemption from it, for us. And a reality, an awareness that comes to us if we are so prepared that I can't do that. I can't fix me. The more I try to fix me, the more I mess me up and everyone else I touch too. This is not the stick beating you. This is the offer because why preparation? Because he wants to bring mercy and grace that you won't get unless prepared. He's coming with something. He's coming with someone. Now John himself didn't even get this because John's bothered by the mercy and the grace. He, he didn't get it. You should. Mercy, mercy, mercy's coming. But mercy for what? Mercy, that word implies something that you deserve but won't get. And John comes and presses upon us. John comes and presents to us the law of God in its unbending, rigid righteousness and holiness. This is the God of Sinai on John's lips. It's the God who is. There aren't two gods, Old Testament, New Testament. There's, there's a God, one. He is the God of Sinai and he's the God of Jesus and mercy. And John presents and says, look, sin, repent, he comes to prepare us in this way. Repent. Fill up the valley where there's currently lack of obedience and smooth out the rough places where there is this harshness and brashness and resistance and, and make low the mountains where there is currently pride. Repent. And then all flesh will see the salvation of God. Repent. Then all flesh will see the salvation of God. You can't see that before repent. He comes to prepare us by preaching that message to us even today. And notice, I'm not going to be any more specific than that because there's nothing, that more, nothing more specific in the passage about that. What I'm trying to do here is to explain there's an order to things here in the economy of God. There's John first, then Jesus. There's sin and repentance, mercy and forgiveness. And if you try to set this aside because I don't like to hear about that, this makes no sense. And it is not remotely sweet. 
There is an order in the economy of God. And what I hope to draw you to, and I'm speaking to the Christians too, what I hope to draw you to is an embracing of both of these dynamics. And an awareness in yourself, He still speaks to me about sin and repentance on the way to mercy and forgiveness. He still speaks to you about that. Now, in that day, obviously, he speaks to them about baptism. That was a way they then, in that culture at that time, would have expressed what was going on in their hearts, a humility. Baptism would have been a publicly humbling posture. I need, nobody thought the water of the Jordan River actually did anything. It's just water. What they're saying, you're right, God. I need to be washed clean by something outside of me. And then they enact that in faith, looking for God's work. There's no, there's no baptism, there's no Jordan River for us today, but there still is the call to that, that similar, that like-minded attitude of humility of poverty of spirit that says, I need to be washed clean. Do, do not, don't resist that. Don't resist that. If you're, if you're not a Christian, definitely, I, I plead with you, don't resist that, but become a Christian by saying, I need to be washed clean by something outside of me, and that something outside of you is Jesus. His shed blood on the cross is what washes away your sin. Come humble to him. Find forgiveness. But Christian, this is the posture of a Christian Always. And it is, not, it is not a great big bat. We should be a people who are incredibly comfortable. And I say that carefully because we shouldn't get comfortable with sin. But, but we should be a people who are incredibly comfortable with sin. Understand me, please? Who are incredibly comfortable with sin because there's no condemnation in it. We, we aren't Adam and Eve in the garden, naked, hiding ourselves. We have a Father who has already dealt with us through mercy and grace. But sin is a barrier between us and Him. And sin is a barrier that holds off the, the second point that I'll be getting to in a moment. And so we should be a people who are incredibly comfortable with sin and who are alert to it, are sensitive to it, who are humble and eager to be repentant of it. Repentance is a lifelong Christian Activity. A lifelong Christian posture. It is not a cringing, fearful, ugly, heavy, morose, mm, angry posture. It is right and appropriate and good. We should be attuned to, as Christians, always attuned to, where am I out of step? Bring me back. Now, always attuned to does not mean focused upon. Our focus, as a Christian, our focus needs to be on Christ, not our sin. Our focus as a Christian, let me say that again, is on Christ, not our sin. But in that, but, but in that, we need to be sensitive to the fact that I still am a sinner. Sensitive to that. It, it, always alert to it. And aware when I'm out of step. Aware when I have said no to God. If you think like this, it shows up in your life consistently. Because you're still a sinner. Which is no condemnation, just a fact. And sin is a barrier that we want to get rid of. And so we say, where am I out of step? Where, you know, things between me and 
child X, spouse, work relative, friend, neighbor, they're a little bit off. You know what? That might be my sin. What is it? Think. Repent. Not say, it's their sin. Maybe it's yours. Think and repent. Always sensitive to the fact, because sin is a barrier between us and all that God means for us to live in and all that God means for us to enjoy. The second point that's coming. God has sent a sweet ministry to us, a sweet preparing ministry. Initially, once and for all in John the Baptist, but John the Baptistic work, if you will, John the Baptist type ministry, a call to repentance is consistently a part of the Christian life and it is a sweet, good blessing. It is not our focus. Our focus is Christ, but we do never set it aside and we do never reject it and do never say, that's for non-Christians. It's for us too. This preparing work done once in a dramatic way and a consistent part of our lives all throughout, this preparing work is what brings us into an enjoyment of all that God means for us to have. And that's the second point. Here's the second observation. Listening to John, embracing this preparing work, prepares us to receive the life and then live as ones greater than John. Listening to John prepares us to receive the life and then live as ones greater than John. Verse 28, Jesus describes John as the greatest of all those born to women. And then he turns it on its head, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So Jesus is drawing a line right here. You've got all the people, then you've got John, who is greatest, and just on the other side of this line, the least one is in fact greater. He turns it on its head. What does he mean? He does not mean that John's not saved. That John's not in the kingdom. Or that if John is saved, that he's saved to somewhere else other than the kingdom of God. Some people have been led astray by this verse on that that point. Luke 13, though, should clarify it for us. Jesus speaking there in Luke 13 says, that in the kingdom of God, we will find there Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. They'll be in the kingdom of God. There's only one king. There's only one kingdom. There's an Old Testament-believing people and a New Testament-believing people. They are the subjects of the king. One. John's going to be in heaven. We'll see him there. That's not what he means. But there is something that he means here. John is in the kingdom eternally speaking, but this is, this is an amazing thing if we can get our minds around this because what this moves to is something about great privilege for us. John's in the kingdom eternally speaking, but he is not in the kingdom temporally speaking. in time, and in his life, temporally. He lived on one side of a great line. Looked at with the Bible itself as a model, there's a time of old, Old Testament, Old Covenant, those words are interchangeable, and there's a time of new, New Testament and New Covenant, and John has both feet in the old. John lives in the time of promise, the time of foretold, the time of prophesied, the time of predicted and hoped for. 
He lived right next to the line, right at the line. And in fact, metaphorically speaking, he grabs the door handle and he's the one who gets to open the door that leads into the new. And he can stand there and he can look into the room and see the new life that's in there. But he stands in the doorway. Outside the room, right at the door, but outside the room. And he looks at a new life that's inside that room and he can, he can see some of it, but not all of it. So he is a, a great, a great, 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 in fact, the greatest figure on that side of the line, but he is on that side of the line. And we all, if you're Christian, you live on this side of the line. So there, in this passage, there is a difference between Old Testament believer and New Testament believer that is, that is remarkable. But there's more here than just Old Testament believer, New Testament believer, because it says, Jesus says, born of women, not just born of Jewish women, born of woman. He's making a comment about the human experience. This is not just, Jesus is not just comparing new to old. He's comparing new to everything. To everything. So think about this. The Old Testament prophet, to be an Old Testament prophet, is certainly great, certainly important, and certainly valuable. And it says that John's the greatest. But consider all of the other greatnesses of the human experience. And I'm not in any way disparaging any of this. We, we could, in some ways, disparage some things that we regard as great, but I'm not doing any of that. Just think through the different categories of the human experience and what it is to be great. The accumulation of knowledge and wealth, the great men of industry, great women of learning. Ever walked onto a university campus and just thought, people are really smart here. And the plaque on here, here on the wall says they discovered this and that and the other. Their, their great intelligence and their great wisdom was, was bent towards great ingenuity and great creativity and great development. These are great people who built this and cured that and, and fixed and constructed a world that's marvelous. Great. Ever visited the, the Capitol or the White House or been in, in some governmental location where you feel like there is power here? This is where things are happening. People sit right there and decide for hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of people, their lives will be thus and so. In that very building, they, they decide that those are great men, great women. You, you hang out around a, a military base and you, you feel the ground rumble beneath a tank or, the, or the, the chopper goes over and the blades and you kind of, inside of you, you feel like there, there is something significant here. You listen to music or you look at paintings and you see the creativity of people that, that somehow have, to, have figured out how to take a medium and, and touch your heart and move it. And you think, genius there, greatness. And you could go on and on and you could talk about poetry and you could talk about the emotions and, and the ability to touch them. People in every field of every time, whatever it is that you can think about where greatness fits, athletic prowess, you watch an event and you say, wow. Don't disparage any of that. It is, in fact, marvelous. Human beings are stunning. Greatness is real. And we strive after it, and we, we bend all of our resources and all of our energy, and we invest our, our minds and our sweat and our money in pursuing greatness and pursuing excellence and trying to become people, and some of us will succeed and maybe even be remembered to the next generation, perhaps. Maybe. But some people will be great. 
Do this. Lift it up. Think about the, the wonder of what the world can be and is. And the greatest one that you can imagine. Now find in your mind an 85-year-old housebound woman in some little town in upper Canada sees the sun every few months and she's a Christian and that's about it. Greater than any of it. Greater than any of it. Which we believe, but we don't really believe. We are, we're stirred at the White House or the military base or the concert or the whatever. And we probably wouldn't want to bother giving her a visit. But greater is she or anybody else who's in the kingdom than the greatest John or anybody else born of woman who's not in the kingdom but has accomplished much great things, many great things. That is not... That's why I said at the beginning, that is not to disparage the great things. And perhaps as I'm going on about that, you're wondering, why is the preacher talking about how great man is? Because we are fearfully and wonderfully made creatures. And God in common grace has enabled us to do some stunning things. It is not at all in any way to disparage the greatness of the people born to women. That Jesus isn't doing that. What he's trying to do, because he's not going to disparage John. In fact, though, what he's showing us is the greatness of the kingdom is such that lift this up as high as you can. Sing the praises of the accomplishments of man as best you can, and there are some things to be sung. In comparison, nothing. The least person, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, and he's greater than everybody else. That's not because this stuff is worthless, it's because the kingdom is precious. The kingdom is marvelous. Membership in the kingdom is the grandest of all privileges that God graciously prepared you to receive when he sent John and then has poured out on you the kingdom. We who are the weakest and the smallest, the most insignificant, the nothings of the kingdom, we live in the midst of glory. Think of the life that you have received and then the life that you can live, can walk in. You, if you're a Christian, you live, you live in the knowledge of, not just the head knowledge, but in the experiential, relational knowledge of a triune God, the second person of whom became a human being. Took on form like you. Can identify with your particular weaknesses and your struggles and your sorrows and your sins and your heartaches so that we don't have a high priest who's unacquainted with us, but one who intercedes for the people of this kingdom only. For this kingdom only, intercedes exactly right, particularly matched to your need because he gets it having been a man. And being God, he has the ear of his Father and he always gets what he asks for. And he asks for you for exactly the right thing, which means you always, always, always get the right thing. You in this kingdom. You who are in this kingdom because of the cross, 
which was a mystery in the Old Testament, unknown, unfathomable, shameful, ridiculous, in fact, offensive. But in the kingdom, we have eyes to see in it the wisdom and the power of God. Wisdom and the power of God, the determination and the love of God, seen in this cross, the mercy and the grace of God, all for you in the kingdom and for his glory. He is meek and humble, and he dies a curse so as to remove your curse. What a kindness! What a love! And what a powerfully wise God it is that made this work. It works. You in the kingdom know what it is to be guilty of sin and freed from it. You know what that's like. Then I don't have to rationalize it away. That wasn't that bad. I didn't really do that. Yeah, you did, and it's gone. The cross worked. It removed off of you guilt. And in fact, it delivered to you a new life because you know the life of the resurrection also. You live a new life in the resurrection and you grow. You you Christian, you kingdom member, you become, you are becoming more like Christ. Growing in holiness. And you know there will be a removal of the very presence of sin which gives you encouragement in the midst of your failures. This is an awesome life to live here in the kingdom. But on top of it all, until the fullness of the removal of sin and the fullness of our glorification comes, we have been given the down payment of the Holy Spirit, which is really, it's not just the icing on the cake, it actually is all the ingredients of the cake. This point is. He is the precious gift of the kingdom. Indeed, the Old, the Old Testament knows of the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament, but John never saw Pentecost, and you live under its blessing. The Spirit was poured out. This is the great delineation. This is, this is the great movement of God in this new covenant. I will put on them my Spirit and move them to follow my decrees. I will give them the down payment of the Spirit living in each one of them. You have fellowship with, this is actually possible for you, you in the kingdom have fellowship with God. Christian. Christian. You have fellowship with God. That's what the kingdom is about. That's what life is for. And it is real, it is possible, it is offered, and it is received by the one who is poor in spirit and humble. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. God graciously, kindly sent the the preparatory work of John to put you in a place to receive the kingdom. And then he keeps it with you to remind you of sin so that daily you can, when needed, clear away the barrier and live in what he means for you to have as a citizen of the kingdom. That is, fellowship with God the Holy Spirit, moment by moment, day by day. You are indwelt, period. And he means for you to be more. He means for you to be filled. We could walk this through in a totally different sermon. A Christian, from the moment that you receive this kingdom membership, you are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, given you as a down payment, as a promise that you're going to get everything in one, in one day. 
But day by day by day, the great privilege that we have here on this side of the line that we have in the kingdom now is that you, Christian, are meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To walk in the power that is in the direction, the enabling, the moving of God, the Holy Spirit, in fellowship with you moment by moment and day by day. A great privilege in the kingdom that John could see from the door but couldn't see. Prophesied, and now upon you come. It's here for you. But to grieve the Holy Spirit, to be hardened against the Holy Spirit, to resist the Holy Spirit, doesn't make you not a Christian. It just makes you a really unhappy Christian. It makes you a bent and twisted and distorted and suppressed Christian. What the world needs and what our families need and what our relationships need and what you need and what you really want is to walk moment by moment in fellowship with God deeply. To become more like Him. To live the resurrection life and to live in the, in the, the shadow of, or perhaps better put, the light of the cross. To walk in fellowship with the triune God. To become more like Him, conformed to His image, that we would be a people who are righteous and holy like Jesus is, and who are meek and merciful like Jesus is, would be a people of truth and a people of love. That's what the world needs in us. That's what our families and our relationships need in us. That's what you want to be. And that's the privilege that He has delivered to you in the kingdom. This side of the line. So do not be like the Pharisees who resist the will of God for them and say, no, I don't need that. I'm good. I'm fine. Don't be like that in a, in a dramatic, absolute way. Become a Christian. But I'm speaking to the Christians and I'm saying, don't be like a Pharisee and say, I'm okay. I'm fine. I got it. But instead, always be humble and always be open-handed, repentant and saying, God, I need you. Direct me. Fill me. Conform me to your image. Make me like you. I'm, I'm putty in your hands. Clay in your hands. Change me. That kind of heart attitude. That kind of heart attitude brings us to a place of not just receiving, but then living in the life that is greater than the life John knew. The life that he's delivered to you. Let me pray. Father, would you move in your people to make us necessarily appropriately alert to sin, sensitive to it, repentant before it. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from unduly being focused on it and you would keep our eyes set on you. Magnify in us a desire, a thirst for the living water to bubble up inside of us and run out of us. Grow in us a sensitivity and a desire for the filling of the Spirit in our personal lives and in our corporate life, in our church as a whole. Lord, would you please move and address whatever particular needs there are. If you want to call some people to particular sins where they are resisting you, call them to that. If you want to encourage them with your presence, encourage them. If you want to light in them interest and desire, then, then light them. Build your church, I pray, Lord. Have your way with us and honor your name. Thank you. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.